Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to another episode of Press Coverage. This is your host, Cameron Clark. And on today's episode, I was joined by my good friend, Brandon Ogden. We react to the Heat's win in Game 4 that take a commanding 3-1 series lead against the Celtics. The Nuggets' bounce-back game in Game 3 against the Lakers. Uh, We also preview a couple big UFC title fights coming up on Saturday. Israel Adesanya, Jan Blachowicz, Dominic Reyes, Paulo Costa. Bunch of big fights Saturday night. Uh, and we also react to what we saw in week two in the NFL. I hope you guys enjoy. I want to start off with the Miami Heat. They just finished off game four. And I I think Tyler Harrow had himself a moment. He had 37 points, shot really well from the field. And the Heat are now one win away from going to the NBA Finals. Do you think that there's any chance the Celtics come back from this deficit, or do you think it's pretty much a wrap right here? No, I, I think the Celtics can come back. I don't know if they can come back to win this series, but I could still see this series going seven because every game has just been so close, um, mm-hmm. and these teams are very evenly matched. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the Celtics win, you know, one or two more games uh, and make this uh, even more competitive series. Other than I think, like what a... it's, I think, I think what it's really going to come down to is can they get more out of Kemba? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what you think, but he's just been so unimpressive to me in this series. And some of it's just mm-hmm. uh, the heat defense and how well they're playing, but it just feels like, I don't know if he's not healthy, but I mean, he went six of 14 tonight, like fine, but like, he's not even really playmaking. He only had five assists. Like it doesn't seem like he gets into the lane uh, very easily. Um, And I I just think they need that little extra, you know, something on offense that he could provide. That and for some, some reason in the first half, like the announcers were both saying it, Mark Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy. But there was there was something weird about Jason Tatum. I mean, he was 0 for 7, didn't score in the first half. And then all of a sudden in the third quarter, he had 16 of their 32 points. And it was like, okay, here come the Celtics. But there was something weird about how he played in the first half. And both teams looked pretty sloppy. So maybe he was just having like a bad half. But it almost looked like he was hurt or something like with his right leg. He just wasn't pushing off and getting the kind of like, explosion that he normally does did you think he was hurt or did you just think it was like sloppy play well so at the end of the game I noticed um when he got uh when they called the butler foul uh that Mm -hmm. eventually got overturned it looked like he grabbed at his groin briefly um so I wonder if there's just something bothering him um I wouldn't also be surprised if you know how often or you know how used to it are these guys you know playing the one game, one day off, one game, you know, they had what, two or three days in between this game. So that makes sense why it was so sloppy. Uh, Cause you're a little bit out of the rhythm that you, you know, you've gotten into over the last month and a half. So, um, but it did look to me like he grabbed that as a groin. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's something going on there. 
It is noteworthy, too, because at the end of the game, I, I just wanted to point out that at the end of this game, Bam Adebayo did start grabbing at his wrist, mm -hmm. and it looked like he might have been hurt. So that is an injury that affects his status for the next game or his performance. That's definitely going to be something to monitor for the rest of this series and potentially for the Heat in the NBA Finals. Um, but I, I want to finish kind of just talking about, one, Jimmy Butler struggled again. I know he ended up scoring over 20 points in this game, and he closed the game out. Um, but, again, in game three, he kind of struggled from the field and just didn't play very well. And, again, in this game, I felt like he was struggling. There was an opportunity in the second quarter and in the fourth quarter for the Heat to really blow a lead up. And he struggled shooting the ball. Do you think there's a concern there? Or is it just he's had two bad games and we still, you know, split those games? I, I just think some of it's that's who Jimmy Butler kind of is. Like, he's not necessarily a great scorer. Um, you know, he's, he's a really effective player. He's a really solid player. But I wouldn't say, like, especially since he's not shooting the three ball well this year. Like, I, I just don't know if that's Jimmy Butler's game. So like mm -hmm. it kind of is, was like, is what I expect from him. Now, maybe you expect a little bit more efficiency, but some of that is uh, the Celtics have good wing defenders and uh, guard mm -hmm. defenders. So some of it might just be the defense, but some of it to me is just, I think we've seen over Jimmy Butler's career that like, this is probably, you know, who he is. Yeah, that's fair. The other thing that I wanted to finish on that I've really taken away from not only this game, but game one, two, and really all of the second round series against Milwaukee from the Heat is how effective playing a zone defense. And we saw it last night in the Lakers Nuggets game three, despite the Lakers losing, when they played the zone defense in the fourth quarter, they went on like a 20 to four run. And it's almost like NBA players get so used to man defense during the regular season that they see zone and they like have a meltdown or something what what do you think of that is that is there any truth to that or do you think just the way that these two teams were executing the zone has more to do with it what do you take away from teams using the zone more the last couple of days in the nba well it goes back to last year with the champion uh Toronto Raptors, shout out to Carroll, Iowa, Nick Nurse. Um, he kind of started this trend, and I think there is something to it. Um, I, I just don't think guys probably – like, teams probably don't practice for it a ton um, throughout the regular season. Um, you only have a day of practice in between these games now, so you're probably, mm -hmm. you know, a little rushed for time. So your zone offense isn't probably going to be your number one uh focus like focus um so some of it's probably just the unfamiliarity with it um i think for the celtics specifically uh it's just a matter of i don't know how many great three-point shooters they have um to take advantage of the zone and kind of shoot the heat out of it um mm -hmm. you know it doesn't help when marcus smart goes three of 12 from the field one of eight from three um mm -hmm. pretty easy to stay in the zone when you have stat lines like that so um mm -hmm. I, th I think that's part of it. I think it's a good wrinkle. I think I think it's one of yeah. those things where it can work as an in-game, like, um, adjustment, like, in spurts. Yeah. I don't think it's something that you can do, you know, over the long term and expect to, to be successful. Yeah. 
And it was funny because even at the end of the third quarter, the Heat were, I believe, up by three, maybe. Uh, Rachel Nichols asked Eric Spolstra, uh, they, the Celtics kind of figured out the zone defense there in that quarter. Are you guys going to stick with it or change something? And he said, well, we'll probably play more man in the fourth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it does seem like a thing that they use it at times just to kind of give them a different look. And the other thing I think is that NBA teams use so much ISO and pick and roll that you can't really pick and roll your way out of a zone defense. So um, it'll be interesting to see if the Heat can close this out in game five or how the Celtics respond in a must-win situation. Speaking of must-win situations, the Nuggets, although they weren't in an elimination game, it kind of felt like one. No team has ever come back from a 3-0 deficit in the NBA playoffs. And boy, did they not let it get to that. Jamal Murray had another really good game. Um, but first, I want to kind of just touch on, we haven't done a podcast since last week, and Anthony Davis finished off game two with a game winner. What did you take away from that play? Uh, well, first, we got to talk about our guy. Our GOAT, LeBron James, was, uh, I texted you at one point in that fourth quarter and said that he shaved him points or that he had the Nuggets plus whatever the line was because <laughs> my guy was not playing well in the fourth quarter. So I just have to acknowledge that for all the haters out there that, uh, you know, would get pissy with me um, if I didn't say it. So there you go. Uh, as far as this shot itself, um, what was Plumley doing, man? You could have paid me oh. three grand to go out there and play that type of defense. That man ran into LeBron, yelled switch. And <laughs> it, it was just like, switch what? He's not picking. LeBron literally didn't move. Grant and LeBron wasn't at, even looking at Miles or Mason Plumley. He wasn't even looking in that direction. That's that's what makes it so weird that it was like Plumley decided before the play that there was gonna be a screen and screened himself. Yeah. And then Grant just looked at like LeBron like stared at LeBron the whole time. So I mean, why would he expect to jump out on a shooter like that? Like that made that was just a blown play by the the Nuggets. Great shot by A B. Um, and you can tell by the way the play was set up. AD even said it after the game that that play was actually drawn up for LeBron. Like they were going to run AD over yeah, the they top. Had LeBron, yeah, LeBron was going to come underneath with Grant on him. And Plumley made that decision much easier for Rondo as the inbounder. And it was a phenomenal shot. Easier. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a phenomenal shot from AD. Um, really put a stranglehold on the series putting the Lakers up 2-0, but then the Nuggets really responded as we've seen them do literally the whole playoffs, being down 3-1 to the Jazz, 3-1 to the Clippers, and Jamal Murray, Jokic, and really Jeremy Grant had really strong games in game three, uh, as well as a, a guy like Iowa State point guard Monte Morris. Um, all, all four of those guys really had strong games in game three. But my first uh, question about – do what? I was going to say, former Iowa State point guard. He's not the current <laughs> Iowa State point guard. <laughs> that would be a recruiting violation. <laughs> uh, my first question about that game, and really just kind of what we've taken away from the playoffs, do you feel like Jamal Murray has planted his flag as a top 15 player in the NBA, or is he not there yet? You still need to see more. Like, where, where are you at on him? Top 15. Uh I have him higher rated than Paul George. So wherever you have Paul George, I would take Jamal Murray over him. Uh, you know, 
probably a 15 to 20 guy for me. Uh, I'd have to go through and, and kind of make my top 20, but I would say probably around the 15 to 20 range. Um, you'd still, for him, the thing is going to be, can he do it night in, night out? He's shown it, you know, for the most part here in the playoffs, but mm-hmm. for him, mm-hmm. it's just a matter of consistency. And now can we see this carry forward into next year's regular season? Uh, because that's what it's all going to come down to is just that consistency. Cause um, we've seen really great Murray. We've seen really bad Murray, um, you know, so can you find the consistency year in, year out? And if he can do that, then there's no reason why, you know, he's not a top four, top five point guard in the league. Mm-hmm. Is there, and the other thing I was thinking about last, last night watching that game three is how young Murray and Jokic and really their whole bench really is. My, Michael Porter Jr., Monte Morris, who we were just talking about, they have a really, really young roster. I think they could do better at shooting guard. I'm not impressed on Gary Harris at all. Um, but they have a really young team. Even Gary Harris is pretty young still. Um, do you do you think they are the team of the future in the NBA? Or do you still need to see more from their whole core uh, to kind of crown them as the next team? It's hard because the NBA, it's really hard to crown like team of the future um, in like the free agency era, just because you never know when Kawhi Leonard's going to leave the Clippers next year and join the Lakers to team up with AD and LeBron. And then it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, your future doesn't really matter because the next three years are going to be decided by them. So it's hard for me to dub them as like the team of the future because I think if you go back probably three, four years, we probably are dubbing the uh, very similarly built Blazers as the team of the future with CJ McCollum, Nurkic, uh, mm-hmm. Lillard, you know, and it's just, well, they happen to have probably one of the greatest teams of all time in their conference and their division. Um, and so, you know, that window of opportunity sort of gets kind of shut for, you know, that immediate future. So. I struggle mm-hmm. with it. I, I think they have the pieces. I mean, I think they're going to be a really good team for, you know, a pretty long time. Um, I, I still don't know if a Jokic-Murray tandem is a championship-level tandem. That's the part I don't know. I just don't mm-hmm. know. You know, Murray has shown it this playoffs. You know, he's come up big in some really big spots. So maybe that's unfair. But with the, you know, the past we've seen from those two, it just felt – like they kind of disappear at some of the bigger moments in, in these playoff games. So maybe Murray's written the script um, and, and can prove me wrong. Um, but I just don't know if those two together are a championship tandem, especially when you have Gary Harris on the court, when you have Paul Millsap on the court, yeah. you know, if you put Porter on the court, you know, you, you that's a different, you're playing with four guys on defense. So, you know, I like their roster, but they do have some holes that they, they desperately need to fill uh, this mm-hmm. offseason. Honestly, even looking at the Heat's roster, I could really stack them up kind of side by side with, I mean, Harrow, they said it after the game, youngest player since Magic Johnson to score over 35 points in a conference finals game. He's 19, Bam Adebayo, super young. I mean, Duncan Robinson, only in a second year. They have a lot of really young players as well. Kendrick Nunn was first team all rookie. Um, I could really see this team sticking around, even with some of like the older guys that they have, like the Jimmy Butlers and the Bolinics and the Crowders. I think there's a good, young, solid core of those 
four or five guys to carry this team into the future. Um, but the other thing, on the other side of that game last night from the Lakers, and I've thought this all season, like during the, during the offseason when they acquired Anthony Davis, everybody just kind of anointed Kyle Kuzma as like the third part of their super team, so to speak. But he's never really been that guy this year. Who do you think the Lakers' third best player is or most important player or most critical to their success? Yeah, it's a great question. So to me, it's it's either Danny Green or uh, Caldwell KCP. Um, it's whichever one is shooting well for the night is their third best player because those two guys can also do it um, on the defensive end, uh, you know, on the perimeter, which is where the Lakers really struggle. Um, if Rondo can play like he did, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when he came back against the Rockets, then, you know, that's great. But down the stretch, late in games, are you going to trust having Rondo on the court? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I don't love it. He can't shoot free throws. He doesn't, you know, he's, he doesn't shoot the ball well, just in general. Um, so to me, it's a matter of can Green or Caldwell Pope, you know, get hot. And if so, you know, great. You, you probably win. Um, but when they play, you know, subpar, it's going to be a struggle. So I think it's one of those two guys. Watching the game, which I, which I don't know if that I don't know if that will inspire confidence in you know a ton of people. Yeah. This this whole playoff run, I have been nothing but displeased with what I've seen from Danny Green. It feels like every game he's really not shot well. Even the games that he's made more threes, he hasn't been very efficient at really at any stretch during this playoff. Uh, but a guy that I think is really important to their success as a team. He might he is not their third most talented player at this point in his career, but I think it's Dwight. I think what he brings to them energy wise, like they were getting out hustled simply in the first half last night. And Dwight came in and kind of lit a spark and got Anthony Davis going uh, and what he brings to the defensive end and the size that they present with him and Anthony Davis on the floor. If he can just not get foul calls, which, we can talk about that too. Like, I feel like Dwight comes into the game and the referees give him two fouls. <laughs> yeah, whole- but that's because Dwight Howard's an asshole and kind of deserves that. <laughs> so, to me, I, I don't understand why the Lakers don't play uh, JaVale McGee more. He only played eight yeah. minutes last night. Like, he's very efficient. He he's, plays tough defense. He's going to rebound. You can throw him the lob. He's, he's, he moves better, I think, side to side uh, than how Dwight does. So, I, I, I wish they would give Javel and this is a decent series for him. Like, yeah, you know, Joker's going to get his, but he can give Joker, you know, a different look and, and cause problems for him. And he's not the asshole that Dwight is. So I wish they would play <laughs> Javel a little bit more. Like, yeah, he's only playing eight minutes. Why can't he play 15 minutes a game? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, and, and I wonder, we really, too, need, and I can... we, we really need 25 minutes and one for seven shooting out of Caruso. Yeah, I think Caruso is another guy that brings a lot of energy. And usually he doesn't, you know, he's not that inefficient. But I think he some won of it seven last game. Yeah, that's that's not great. But I think a lot of it <laughs> also was matchup based in game three that they played Jeremy Grant quite a bit more than they normally do. I know he starts the games, but they played him more than they normally do. And, you know, matchup wise, they couldn't have you know, another big in there with AD the whole game. 
Um, but still, I'm curious why they don't play McGee more. We saw during the regular season that all three of those big men were getting a lot of minutes, and that's when the Lakers really seemed like they were at their best. Um, they kind of flipped the, the script on the they can't shoot the three ball and turned it into, well, we're just going to be bigger and rebound everybody and get out and transition because we get so many boards. Um, which is really something that I think they should look to do here tomorrow in game four um, to kind of put this series to bed. But something that's always funny to me in the media is nobody picks these series to be a sweep. Like none of us did on the podcast. I know I didn't, you didn't, Chase didn't, even uh, Foley and Connor did not. And yet the Nuggets win a game and everyone's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? The Nuggets just won a game, and it's like, didn't we all kind of expect them to win one or two games? Yeah, I can't believe a professional team that has people making millions of dollars showed up and won a game uh, in a Western <laughs> Conference Finals. Right. Like, like, they just beat the team that everybody thought coming into this was the best team in the NBA. Yeah. You're surprised yeah. they won a damn game? Like, yeah. get out of here. <laughs> On the, on the Nugget side of things as well, I want to finish up with a couple things on them. Uh, just looking at how good of a coach and how good of a fit Mike Malone has been with a good shooting, um, good passing big men like Jokic, do you think the Kings look at Mike Malone and just really think they fumbled the bag? Or was that more of like a Boogie Cousins, coaches don't really get along with him kind of deal? But from all the reports, I think him and Boogie really got along well. He was crushed when uh, Malone was fired. So I think the Kings look at themselves and say, what are we doing every year? And that's part of the problem with the Kings. Uh, and, and the other thing that I kind of want to finish up on about that game last night is I know I asked you about Jamal Murray. And it's weird. Like, I know how good Jokic is, but I never really feel that during the game that I'm that impressed with him because he does a lot of like really simple things or like really kind of like, cause he's not super athletic and he hits a lot of fadeaways and crazy shots. Do you feel like he would be classified as a superstar in the NBA right now? Uh, Jokic? Mm -hmm. uh, no, not as I like. It's tough, right? Top like, is he a top 10, top 12 player? Probably. Yeah. yeah. But like, I, I don't know if he's a superstar. Like, I don't I don't think his jersey's, you know, jumping off the, the charts for, you know, <laughs> most sold jerseys. <laughs> but, like, I part think of that's, part of that's just like Denver. A, like a Kevin Durant or a LeBron or right. Kawhi or Giannis. Yeah. Like, he, he's the best player on his team no matter what. Like, and you know what to expect from him. And Jokic really statistically has been that guy the last three years. Like, he's going to give you points, he's going to rebound, and he's going to be one of the best passing big men. But for some reason, there's like this he's not athletic block in my brain that, like, stops me from thinking of him like the other guys. Yeah, there's nothing, like, too flashy about him. He's just yeah. <laughs> solid in every aspect. Uh and, and that's it. He's just kind of a chubby, tall guy. Right. <laughs> and also, you mentioned the Clippers, and that's who the Nuggets beat to get into this position. And a couple of days ago, there was a story that came out. I believe it was in The Athletic, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, about Paul George and the end of the season meeting that he had, um, basically coming to his teammates and saying, "Come on, guys! Like, we don't give up. Like, we got to run it back one more year." I'm, I'm not like quoting him word for word, obviously, but it was something to that effect where he was like pleading with his guys that the only option was to run it back met with like all the other guys on the bench thinking that they were better players than him, which apparently caused a bunch of rifts in the team this year. Um, and also there's a little bit of shallowness to that um, speech, so to speak, because him and Kawhi are on one-year deals. Like obviously you want those guys to come back. So you're not just stuck trying to fill a roster out, you know? So what was your takeaway from that story, if anything? Uh, you gotta, you gotta give me a little more in the playoffs before you come up here and try to new rock new me into, you know, going out and giving it my all. Like this ain't the Hoosiers, my guy. You don't, you don't get to make however, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars to throw shit off the side of the backboard. Uh, so you can miss me with that bullshit. Is exactly what I would think. And like, let's be honest, that Clippers relation like team atmosphere relationship whatever you want to call it is a very toxic relationship if you are in that locker room get the hell out of here that shit sounds so terrible it sounds like they just hate each other uh and i think part of the the dynamic between doc and paul george like if you don't know how (laughs) how they know each other personally Super strange because Doc's daughter uh, used to be married to Paul George, or maybe they were engaged or something. And Paul, <laughs> Paul George's George. sister. <laughs> oh, okay. I, never mind. I, I thought you said Doc used to be married to Paul George. I was like, no, I don't think um, I don't think that's right. His daughter, Doc's daughter. Doc's daughter used to be married or engaged to Paul George, and he cheated on her with a stripper. Uh, and this Who is like, among us has it <laughs> and this is public knowledge that everybody knows and he's <laughs> supposed to be their second best player who they just traded six first round picks for and Shea Gilders Alexander and Danilo Gallinari and there's that awkward dynamic between him and the coach that's got to already create some weird tensions maybe it doesn't maybe Doc's just like a consummate professional and never is bothered by it, but you would think it kind of has to. And then you got Lou Williams, then you got Trez, and then and Pat, yeah, Pat Bev, and Kawhi, who's never, in my eyes, gonna be like the vocal leader of a team. So you just have all these different bad dynamics and tensions co-mingling with each other that are never getting worked out. It really is, like you said, like a bad, toxic relationship where you never talk about your issues. (laughs) Or, like, it's all you talk about, and so, like, there's no good times. Uh, Because, like, what really happens is probably, like, Trez and Pat Bev are just always constantly complaining. And we all know that friend that's, like, just 100% negative, that you're just like, all right, my guy, like, we're just having a couple drinks. Like, it's fine, you know? Yeah. it's gonna be okay uh and this is so like you know that it's not great like it that's the one downside to Kawhi Leonard is 
in that type of environment is when you need your unquestioned leader on the court to be mm-hmm. the leader of the locker room. Because um, if not, guys like Pat Bev and guys like Trez Harrell uh, or, or uh, Marcus Morris uh, become your, your leaders. And probably not the um, guys you want to follow. Uh, <laughs> you know, so... I just don't know if the dynamic is great. That's why I don't know if Paul George and Kawhi are a great fit. Like it makes sense from a basketball perspective on the court, but it's more off the court. Cause even Paul George is not a vocal leader. Um, You know, he wasn't with the Pacers. He certainly wasn't. uh, He's always been kind of the second banana um, to someone else. So Right, just on, feel, you can really I, say, like, on the Pacers, it was David West. I well, mean, and before that, it or, was Danny Granger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm talking about, like, when he was, like, the guy. It was yeah. really David West. And even, you know, I mean, not even joking, but Lance Stevenson was probably more of a vocal leader on that team when they were really good. Or George Hill, you know, I mean, all those guys yeah. had a stronger presence in that locker room, I would assume, than Paul George did. Yeah, and so I just think that's a tough – it's tough for your best two players who are superstars um, that just aren't the, okay, guys, like, let's get this shit together and let's go. Right, right. Um, The last NBA thing that I kind of wanted to touch on is there was some big coaching news yesterday. Uh, The Chicago Bulls had fired Jim Boylan – several months ago as they did not make it to the the bubble as a qualifying team. They were one of the eight teams that did not qualify and they hired a new coach, former Thunder, former Florida Gator and former, obviously we had to remember his days as the Marshall Thundering Hurts head coach. Uh, was, he a, was it Providence or something at one point? He played at Providence and before he uh, went to the right. um, But yeah, he, he went to Providence. Um, but Billy Donovan was hired as the Chicago Bulls head coach. So I, I'll, I'll go first on this. Like, I like the move. Obviously, I'm probably biased just to my affection for Billy Donovan. I think he's one of the greatest basketball minds that I've ever seen coach the Florida Gators. And he led Florida, obviously, to back-to-back national championships, always recruited really well. And it seems like even his time away from Florida, the program has still really appreciated him. His former players like Chandler Parsons, Bradley Beal, like Nick Calathis, all those former players, Corey Brewer, Al Horford, all still speak really, really highly of him. And I think that means a lot that he was able to recruit and develop those young players, especially for a team like the Bulls that has a lot of young guys like Zach Levine, Laurie Markinen, um, who was the guy, uh, Wendell Carter, um, that they just drafted from Duke. And I think it, I think it could be a good marriage. I don't know if they're going to win a lot of games, obviously, next year. Um, but I think down the road, it could end up being a good relationship between the two. What do you think? You got to feel bad for him because he's going from Russell Westbrook to Zach Levine. Uh, just the same type of players. Uh, like, the one weird thing is, like, we think the Bulls have a lot of good young players, but damn, they got $106 million tied into their cap already for next year, like, on the books. So, like, that's not – they're paying Otto Porter 
28 million too much. Uh, the paying Thaddeus Young 13 and a half million. My God. Uh, and then even worse, Christian, uh, Cristiano Felicio makes seven and a half million. No, damn, their GM has given out some just terrible contracts. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, they got some young pieces. Um, I don't know how well those young pieces fit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, that's, I think, can Billy come in and, and kind of figure that out? Um, I don't know. I don't know how far a team can go with Zach Levine as its best player. Um, it's kind of yeah. similar to, you know, a, to a lesser extent, Russ. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a very low ceiling on those type of teams. So I don't know how great of a fit it is for Billy. I There was rumor that the Pacers were going to uh, make him an offer. If that's the case, I would have much rather been in, uh, mm-hmm. with the Pacers because I feel like that kind of fits him more than Chicago mm-hmm. does. Uh, Billy kind of reminds me um, of a kind of more chiseled Fred Hoiberg. Um, and, and we all saw how that went uh, for Chicago. So for the Bulls, it's great. It's, it's a much better fit than, than Boylan. Um, you got him mm-hmm. out. So uh, it's a step in the right direction. And now it's just, can we develop the young players and make sure um, we kind of iron out, you know, these roles as we move forward. Also, I greatly apologize that I left off probably the guy that was their most efficient player last year, and he was a rookie. Your guy, Kobe, Kobe White. White. Yeah, yeah, I completely you forgot about apologize. him. So, um, do what? Said you should apologize. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I, I do like the move. I like the hire. Um, and like I said before, I don't know if that means they're going to win a lot of games, but I do think that that they'll be in better hands than they were with Hoiberg or they certainly were with Jim Boylan. Um, but another team that I w- would have liked to have seen him go to, cause I was a little bit puzzled by the Thunder's decision to let him go, but I would have liked to have seen him go to the Pelicans. You know, we, we're talking about teams with a lot of young players and he's done well with athletic young big men because although he might not look like it now, but Al Horford, when he was at Florida was a really athletic big, and it's why they were able to beat Greg Oden and Kevin Love in back-to-back national championships. Um, I thought that partnership would have worked out really well. Um, but again, I am excited to see him stay in the NBA, get another job, and um, get a chance to win some games with the Chicago Bulls. But Brandon, this Saturday, we have two, not just one, but two UFC title fights on the line. Are you excited? I am, uh, for one more than the other. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so one is obviously the vacant heavyweight, or, or light, excuse me, light heavyweight title fight uh, between Dominic Reyes and Jan Blachowicz. And the main event, the fight that we've all been waiting to see, is undefeated and still Israel Adesanya against his middle middleweight competitor, undefeated as well, Brazilian Paulo Costa. So what are some of the keys to this main event between Adesanya and Paulo Costa? Obviously, in, Israel, in, in Israel's last couple of fights, he's kind of taken the John Jones approach and done the, you have to beat me, I'm the champ, take my belt, um, which is not how we saw him fight early on. But what are your keys to how this fight should play out? 
Yeah, I think it's going to it's going to depend on the aggressiveness out of Costa. Um, I, I can promise you this. This fight is going to be on its feet. <laughs> Neither of these guys do much on the ground. Um, so I think it'll be a very exciting fight as long as uh, Paulo Costa doesn't pull a, a, a Romero, <laughs> Yoel Romero, and, and just, you know, throw a random kick once every 17 minutes. Uh, so I think it's going to be a super fun, super exciting fight. If Paulo gets too aggressive, I, I think Adiasana is just going to kind of just pick him apart. He's going to counter. Um, and then, you know, when he counters, that's really when he has his uh, kind of blends his significant strikes, his power shots. Um, and I think he can really hurt him. Uh, if, if Adiasana gets caught by a couple of, of uh, what Costa can throw, mm-hmm. it might be tough for him to, to retain that belt because I don't know if he's been hit by someone um, like Paulo Costa. Um, and even if he's been hit by someone like that, I don't know if he's been hit consistently because Paulo Costa is not going to stop. He's just going to keep coming forward and forward and forward, uh, which yep. is something that Yoel Romero refused to do. Um, and I would say their power is probably, it's similar. It's not the same. Um, I think the one really big thing that Adiasana has going for him here is he has a huge reach advantage. Um, mm-hmm. And so can he, you know, keep Paulo Costa at distance um, and just kind of slowly pick him apart, um, which is what mm-hmm. Adiasana does so well. So I think it's a really, really intriguing fight. I think this um, is honestly like of the like title fights that we've seen this year. I think this is the best uh, best peer matchup. Sure. And uh, one thing that I really think is important to this fight, kind of like you said, how aggressive Paulo Costa is going to be, because in their careers, I'm looking at it right now, Israel and Asanya his significant strikes landed per minute is under four strikes landed per minute. And Paulo Costa's significant strikes landed per minute is almost eight and a half. So he's just mm-hmm. a much more aggressive fighter. And I think out of the last three fights that we've seen Israel Adesanya fight, really since he kind of blew up in 2019, as we saw with Riel Romero, who took a very conservative approach to that fight in March. And then also with, uh, Robert Whitaker, when he won the title, and before that, Kevin Gastelum, neither of those guys were the most aggressive strikers. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see, because um, I'll never underestimate Israel Adesanya and his preparedness. His mind is a very sharp mind. Um, but I just worry that his game plan might be a little different once he gets takes one of those hard Brazilian shots in the face. Um, so I'm very excited to see how that fight plays out. And then on the co-main event, Dominic Reyes and Jan Blahovich for the light heavyweight title fight that John Jones just recently vacated. <clears throat> we saw Dominic Reyes the last time he fought against John Jones in a fight that a lot of people thought he should have won. Uh, it went to a decision. They were in Houston, Texas for one of the first times ever for a UFC pay-per-view. And, and a, I don't believe it was a split decision, but it was pretty controversial. No. Was it split? No, I don't think so. It was very close, but I don't think it was split. And uh, Dominic Reyes just barely lost that light heavyweight title then. Um, So now he gets his chance uh, to fight and claim gold against a really strong competitor, uh, Jan Blahovich. What are you looking for in this fight? 
Yeah, to me, this one just comes down to is the fight on their are they on their feet or are they on the ground? Uh, if it's on the ground, Jan has the, you know, a, a much better chance of winning this fight. Uh, mm-hmm. And then if it's if they're on their feet, then I really like Dominic in this fight. So this is one of those, you know, styles make fights. It's more of a grappler versus a, 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 a traditional boxer. Um, so I, I, I think that's you know, that's what it's going to come down to. How I envision it is I think Reyes probably um, gets a win by by knockout. Um, I just think the power, um, the youth, I mean, that guy has no quit. He's coming forward. Uh, he's consistently coming forward. Um, you know, he, he is one of those, he's always active. He's always busy in there. Um, so I, I just think he's going to overwhelm Jan a little bit, um, especially because, I mean, he has tremendous power. Um, so, and I think it really helped that he had the five-round championship fight experience that he got uh, going mm-hmm. against John Jones. So I think that helps him a lot going into this fight. Yeah. Uh, before we make our picks, I just wanted to touch on one thing. Um, so last Saturday, the UFC Fight Night main event was a pretty big draw. Uh, the co-main event was uh, Donald Cowboy Cerrone, uh, but the main event was Colby Covington and Tyron Woodley. Um, and it really looks like at this point, Tyron Woodley's either on the last leg of his career or past it. Um, even after the fight, Dana White said that he thought it was time that Tyron Woodley should retire. Um, but Colby Covington, obviously super eager to get another fight um, with Kamaru Usman for, for the welterweight title fight. Um, but first, Usman has a match set with Gilbert or Gilbert Burns. Um, so would a Colby Usman rematch excite you? Or would you rather see Colby fight someone like Corey Masvidal um, in the interim? Uh, I'd love to see him fight Masvidal just because of their uh, history. But if not, Leon Edwards needs a freaking opponent. So I'd love to see him fight Leon Edwards. Um, you know, I think he deserves a shot at one of these top guys. So I really, really am rooting for him to get uh, Colby. Uh, I think that would be a, a pretty fun matchup. Um, mm-hmm. So Leon Edwards would be my vote. I think, you know, the match that makes the most sense from a UFC, you know, getting eyes on on, uh, on TVs is, is Mazadov. Uh, mm-hmm. But I would vote Leon Edwards. Sure, absolutely. And I'm excited for all these upcoming title fights that we have with Gaethje, um, Habib. Um, but first, we have to pick these two title fights for this Saturday. So I will start first. I am going to actually go with Dominic Reyes in the co-main event. And then I'm going to go for the upset. I think Costa is going to end up being the end new middleweight champion. How do you see them both turning it? Uh, I, I too like Reyes and the, the co-main. Um, I like it actually by stoppage. The mm. Adias on a fight all week, I said I was going to pick Paulo Costa, but this is one of those guys similar to when McGregor got going and was really making a name for himself that I'm just going to go down with the ship, um, you know, <laughs> until someone actually beats him. Like I, I'll just, I'll ride the hot hand. So I'm going to sure. take, I'm going to take Adi Asana. To me, it, it feels more like it's probably going to be a decision, um, but mm-hmm. 
Um, I do expect it to be a really entertaining fight. Yeah, absolutely. Especially after how, as we both have talked about, that Yo Romero fight went. I think Paulo Costa is going to take the initiative. Yeah, and come after Adesanya and not just let him sit back. Um, but I'm excited to watch both of those fights play out. But in the interim, we have some football to talk about from last week. So first things first, we always got to talk about somebody else's job and who's getting fired. So the Jets seem like for most of that game, they were there were 49ers going down the whole game, and the Jets still couldn't find a way to come back in that football game. Adam Gase has had numerous issues with different players, managerial decisions as he was the interim GM for a short period of time before they hired former Eagles vice president Joe Douglas. Uh, and then another guy who's just struggling, to put it simply, who's 9-24-1 in the last two years plus is Matt Patricia from the Detroit Lions. Again, they were up 14-3 to early on against the Green Bay Packers, and it turned into a blowout the other way. They lost 42-21 to against Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers. So my first question, judging by what we've seen early on, who, which of these guys is on the hotter seat? Uh, if I was a GM, I, to me, it's Gase. I would, I would fire him immediately. It's, I don't know what they're doing. I don't think the locker room likes him. Like, I don't think anybody likes him. Um, and so to me, I would fire Gase. Um, we've talked over text. I know you're not a Sam Darnold fan and I am, uh, but what they've done and the talent they've surrounded him with is criminal, um, and extremely unfair. Uh, Patricia, Patricia is a guy that like I'm going to give till the end of the year. And if it doesn't turn around, which they're the Lions, so I fully expect it won't, I'm going to fire him. Uh, but Gase, like at this point, I would just cut my losses and fire him. Yeah, I think it's close, but I agree. I think it's Adam Gase. Um, my issue with the Detroit Lions is one on paper. And like you said, I don't know what this means because they're the Detroit Lions. But on paper, they were supposed to be somewhat competitive this year. A lot of people had them as their seventh wild card team in the NFC or seventh playoff team, not seventh wild card, seventh playoff team in the NFC this year. And so far through two two weeks, they haven't been able to stop a soul on defense, which is what Matt Patricia should be hired for. He was a defensive coordinator with New England. And Matthew Stafford continues to make critical mistakes at points in the game when it matters most. But I just think from the fact that the Jets are so devoid of talent that it's got to be Gates. And I agree. I think it needs to be soon. If they get blown out by the Colts this week, I wouldn't be surprised to see him get fired. Um, speaking of big losses, on Monday Night Football this past week, we both took a big loss. <laughs> we did. We really New Orleans did. Uh, taking a loss on Monday Night Football in the first ever game. Man, I wish there had been fans there because that stadium looks sweet with that flaming torch and the oh, yeah. the roof with the sunlight coming in early on. Um, but the Las Vegas Raiders defeated the New Orleans Saints. And there's a couple of ways I want to go with this. But first, we'll start with the losers. Uh, Drew Brees just did not look great in this game. He was really long arming footballs the whole game um, on the interception. He was backing up and short armed it and threw it right into uh, a linebacker for a really critical 
mistake that really shifted the momentum in this game right before halftime. Um, so what did you take away from this on the Saints offense? I know they were without Michael Thomas, which you lose a guy who catches 140 plus passes in a year. It's going to be a problem, but you didn't expect Drew Brees and their offense to look like that. So what did you think? Yeah, I think the loss of Thomas does hurt. I just think with Brees, there's no vertical uh, threat. Like, Emmanuel Sanders should be that person, but Drew Brees is just showing an unwillingness to even take a chance um, mm-hmm. at throwing the ball more than, like, 17 yards in the air. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's just really going to limit the offense. It reminds me a lot of Peyton's last year in mm-hmm. Denver. Now, I don't think – I think his arm is better than what Peyton had. Um going in like it like during that year um but it's not great um he's still really efficient he's still gonna make good decisions he's not gonna lose you ball games uh you know he might not go down you know and win a bunch of them but he's still really smart he still has the arm talent you know to to be super accurate on the underneath stuff um so like i don't think this year it's going to be like a huge concern just because I think their roster is super talented. Um, I just, I think it limits their ceiling. I had them uh, as Super Bowl champions. I don't know if they can beat a team like Kansas City, beat a team Mm -hmm. like Baltimore, if they don't Mm -hmm. have some type of vertical playmaking. Mm -hmm. I agree. Uh, It was, it's pretty concerning. Um, and I've even seen some people like Mina Kimes uh, shouting or throwing the idea out of playing Jameis Winston, which I'm not even close to that idea yet. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you can't, you can't do that. But I am concerned. Uh, and especially if Michael Thomas might be out another week, maybe two. Um, I, I, I'm pretty concerned about how his arm looked in that game because he didn't even really look great in week one. But on the other side of the ball, the Raiders, they looked really sharp on offense from the way they controlled the the, the clock, controlled the line of scrimmage. We know they have a, a pretty strong offensive line. And Josh Jacobs last year was the only rookie to rush for over 1,000 yards. And they have a literal freak at tight end who was a former receiver at Georgia Tech, um, came back from a history of bad drug problems, even while he was in the NFL, Darren Waller. And he was – literally the difference of the game on Monday night. Um, the Raiders were my second team in the AFC West. I had them going eight and eight. Uh, I still have some concerns about how their defense and m- m- mostly their secondary could hold up throughout the entire season. Um, but I like what I've seen early on. I-, I think from my point of view, and I'll let you weigh in after this, but I think from my point of view, one of these young receivers or two of them uh, could really step up, whether it's Brian Edwards, Henry Ruggs, or Hunter Renfro, and provide a consistent, you know, option opposite of Waller in the passing game. I think they could really challenge for that seventh wild card spot uh, if Carr and Jacobs keep playing the way they are. Let me ask you this. Their next four at Patriots versus Bills, at Chiefs versus Bucks. Tough. If they lose they all know. four of those – like we we might be having a whole different conversation uh like to me it's still like Derek Carr is still the check down king you know Drew Brees averaged more yards per pass uh than than Carr did 
for as much as we talk about Breeze not going vertical, like we just haven't seen it. Uh, they got bailed out on a really bad pass interference call. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's great they won. Um, you know, the Raiders are one of those teams where I think the NFL is better when they're competitive, especially now that they're in Vegas. Uh, Josh Jacobs is really good, but, I mean, he averaged 3.3 yards uh, per carry. Um, yeah. So, like, I still worry a little bit about the efficiency of their offense just because Carr is so risk-adverse. Um, uh, so, I worry that they're going to be able to score on a consistent basis. Um, and the defense, I, I think you nailed it. The defense still um, does not inspire a lot of confidence in me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, I mean, that, that schedule is just brutal. And I mean, you play the Chiefs twice. You're going up against a really good defense and the Chargers twice. Um, you know, I, it's a tough, tough schedule, man. So we'll see. I love John Gruden. So, like, I'm rooting for them to do well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I just, to me personally, Derek Carr's not the guy. And that's what it comes down to. You mentioned their opponent that they face this upcoming week, the Patriots. And I also wanted to talk about how the Patriots fared in their Sunday night football game uh, against the Seahawks this past week. And really, mainly the performance of both of the quarterbacks. So, We'll start with the losers and then finish up with your guy, Mr. Unlimited. Uh, but Cam Newton on the losing side, I mean, there was talk all offseason, even us, like on the podcast, we talked about um, the concern over why hasn't Cam Newton been signed yet. And it was really the concern over his health. You know, teams couldn't, due to COVID, couldn't get a doctor in there to give him a full examination and make sure that shoulder and his ankle from last year were both healthy and it's I think it scared a lot of teams off um and there were some concerns about his inefficiency his last year and a half but I think he was dealing with a lot of injuries there in Carolina uh and I think he's starting to quiet a lot of the doubters granted it's been granted it's been very run heavy um but I think they're playing to his strengths from those uh power power quarterback runs and the play action passing and even those deep shots that he took to Julian Edelman, the stat that I took away from the game feeling the most impressed by was it was Julian Edelman's career high in receiving, and it wasn't Tom Brady throwing in the ball. Um, what did you make of Cam Newton's performance on Sunday? Yeah, uh, well, first, I, I, if anybody knows me, I'm not a Chris Collinsworth fan at all, but I thought Collinsworth did a really nice job. Um, of showing some of the mechanical differences that the Patriots have trying to been working with him about not dropping his back shoulders when he's throwing. And mm-hmm. you could see uh, just in this game how much more accurate I thought he looked. He seemed to always miss high in Carolina, uh, which is mm-hmm. why they always drafted really big wide receivers. Um, and now he goes to the Patriots where, I don't know, they probably have one of the shorter receiving, receiving staffs uh, or core uh, in the mm-hmm. NFL. But he looked a lot more accurate. He looked a lot more confident. Um, so credit to Josh McDaniels and, and, and the, you know, the Patriots offensive staff. Um, but he threw the ball extremely well. I know they lost this game, but the big takeaway for me is the Patriots aren't going anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even with all the opt-outs, even without, you know, having James White, um, you know, due to the family tragedy there, uh, they really don't have a running game outside of Cam. 
Sony Michel was their leading rusher with 19 yards. Um, so Cam is really kind of, you know, holding that offense together. I don't know if that's sustainable for a year. Um, you know, the big question with Cam is always going to be durability. Um, so, you know, as long as he can stay healthy and plays, you know, close to this, they're going to be really competitive. If he gets hurt and they have to turn to uh, do from uh, Stidham from Auburn, Mm-hmm. probably going to be, you know, rough. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I, I think it's really going to come down to Cam's health. Yeah, I agree. And on the other side, Russell Wilson threw five touchdowns in that game, but three of which were some of the most beautiful passes I've ever seen on TV. Um, the first one to open up the scoring for him in the game uh, was a deep shot crossing uh, – the field to the right side of the field to DK Metcalf over like an outstretched arm of Stephon Gilmore, who's one of the best corners in the NFL, who was the defensive player of the year last year. And just a beautiful precision touchdown following that to David Moore falling in the corner or the front right or left corner of the end zone. And then the one that capped it off at the end of the game where he floated it over the defense to Chris Carson running into the end zone. I mean, it was just, it was like you were watching a painter work. Like everything was just beautiful artwork. And even when things get stressful for Russ, it doesn't feel like it's stressful for him. It's just like stressful for maybe the coaches and the viewers and probably their fans, but he's always like in control of what's going on. Uh, and that was my biggest takeaway that right now he, he looks like the best player in the NFL right now. Yeah, and that's why I picked him to be the MVP. Um, and the one interception he threw was a great pass to uh, Greg. I should be in the booth calling this game Olsen. Um, so, <laughs> you know, the stat line was incredible. If you watch it, it's it's even more incredible. To me, he reminds me of Greg Maddox in his prime. Maddox never had the biggest arm. He never threw the hardest. But what was he going to do? He's going to hit his spots. He was going to outsmart you and he was going to out execute you. And that's what Russell Wilson is like, no matter what defense you think like is, is going to work. Russell Wilson is going to figure out how to make a play when he's throwing the ball. He's going to be extremely accurate. He's, he, he knows when to put a little oomph on it. He knows when to float it. Like he's got every trick, um, you know, in the bag. Uh, and it's just, it's a lot of fun to watch. And this is coming from a guy who I hated the Seahawks. I hated Russell Wilson. I thought he was overrated. Um, and to me, man, I, Mahomes is the most talented, like pure talented quarterback, but hard not to say that Russell Wilson isn't the best quarterback in the NFL. And another good quarterback that I want to transition over to is my quarterback, Gardner Minshew, uh, he's looked really sharp through two games uh, against what most people kind of expected were going to be good defenses. We saw Tennessee play a good defensive game against uh, Denver Monday night week one. Um, and then the Colts played a really strong defensive game against the Vikings uh, this past week here in week two. Um, but Gardner Minshew right now is fourth in the NFL in completion percentage and second in the NFL in touchdowns and he just looks really comfortable like I, I saw someone uh, tweet this earlier today that without 
Leonard Fournette there. It's like the the offense is more freed up. Like they don't have to give Leonard Fournette the ball 20 times and they can be more creative. And I think the Jay Gruden, Gardner Minshew marriage has worked really, really well. And that was something that I was hopeful of and I thought might be the case heading into the season because of kind of what his strong suits are. You know, that being an accurate passer, being able to be sort of athletic and throw on the run. Um, and I, I've been really impressed, honestly, by him so far. So what are your takeaways from the stash? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And Gruden has never really had like a bad quarterback statistical year. Um, mm-hmm. Going back to his days with Andy Dalton, you know, with the Bengals, those were Dalton's best years. Uh, obviously what Kirk Cousins did for the Redskins. Um, you know, he's always had been able to get good production out of the quarterback play. So um, I, I, to me, like the thing with Minshew, and I've never said I don't think he's the guy. I've always said I don't know if he's the guy. Um, you know, we he still hasn't played a full NFL season um, if you count up all of his starts. So. Uh, mm-hmm. I just want to see it for 16 games. Um, and, you know, he might be. And if he is, that's great. Um, you know, uh, you can go fill a different hole with your top five pick next year. So it's it's got to be, you know, nothing but confidence and, in, in, you know, <clears throat> excitement if you're a Jacksonville fan. Um, he's a fun Would guy. He's, he's, I... he's a guy – yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say something say- that as a as I said, said to you, I don't know if it was today or yesterday, uh, it's very easy for us down here in Jacksonville to get inspired by good quarterback play, Brandon. Very easy. Yeah. We've been in quarterback <laughs> territory since 2000, 2001 when Mark Brunell left. It's been a long time, Brandon. <laughs> it has. So enjoy it. He's an easy guy to root for. Um, he's a lot of fun. He's, he's kind of that cult hero, uh, you know, type dude. So I think the one thing for him is just he's got to take care of the ball. He had a fumble, you know, he threw two picks, you know, one was tipped. But um, so if he can just take a little bit better care of the ball, um, you know, I think he, I think he's the guy for you guys. We talked about the 49ers briefly earlier when we were mentioning Adam Gase, um, but they were just hit by a rash of injuries something I don't know if I've ever seen before for one team to have that many major injuries in one game so they lost Nick Bosa to a torn ACL out for the season former top five pick also on the defensive line Solomon Thomas out for the season torn ACL they traded away obviously in the offseason to Forrest Buckner so it's really now Eric Armstead Javon Kinlaw and then backup defensive ends And then also in that game, on the offensive side of the ball, they've already been dealing with a myriad of wide receiver injuries. Debo has yet to play. Kittle was out for the game. And then Jimmy Garoppolo might be out four to six weeks. But then I heard some rumor today that he might even be able to play somehow this week. Um, But then Raheem Mostert and Tevin Coleman are both out four to six weeks. Um, We heard them blame the turf in New York at Met, at uh, MetLife Field. Um, so really, it seems apparent that the Jets can't do anything right, not even put good turf down. Um, but 
Do you think the 49ers, I mean, we've seen how strong the Cardinals have looked, how strong the, the Seahawks have looked, and even the Rams. They're 2-0 and also. So they're sitting here, the 49ers are 1-1, one and one, and they're in fourth place in their division through two weeks. Do you think they can sustain some competitive football with all these injuries, or do you think that the season's pretty much done for them? Uh, so they have a pretty soft schedule. They have the Giants, the Eagles, and the Dolphins the next three weeks. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but are all three of those teams 0-2 at the moment? Um, they are. Yeah. So they, they, they have some wiggle room. Um, as long as they can, let's say, go 2-1 and one in these next three, I think they'll be okay, um, assuming that they start to get some of these guys back. Um, mm-hmm. But the the middle – like part of their schedule, they have the starting with the Rams week six, then they go Patriots, Seahawks, Packers, Saints, um, by Rams, Bills. Uh, that's not that's not great. And you're going to want your best players to be healthy. So losing Bosa is huge, um, huge loss. Uh, if Kittle can't be 100 percent in this offense with you know, Jimmy G, uh, that's their best weapon by far. Um, mm-hmm. And the passing game is such a good blocker um, in the run game. Like, I, I don't think people quite grasp how big of a loss that is. So it's not great. It's not great. Um, I kind of thought this was one of those teams coming into the year that was going to regress a little bit. Um, so, uh, but I didn't think it was going to be because, <laughs> they lose half of their starters, what it feels like, you know, week two. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't even mention another injury that they had before that game was Richard Sherman um, mm-hmm. as well. He's on IR also. Um, so, I mean, they're just really hit all across the board. And lucky for them, they get to go right back to New York and play on that turf again this week. So stay healthy. Um, but it is a, a very <laughs> concerning time for them. Godspeed. Speaking of concern, there are four teams who are currently 0-2 that uh, whether we had them in the playoffs or just short of it, we had them pretty favorable opinions of them heading into the season. Um, And that's the Houston Texans, the Minnesota Vikings, the Denver Broncos, and the Atlanta Falcons. So of these four teams, is there a team that you're most concerned about or least concerned about that steps kind of jumps right out? Well, first and foremost, I wasn't very high on the Broncos this year, so I'm just going to ignore them for the sake of this conversation, if you don't mind. Uh, And I'm going to focus on the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, I thought this was a team that was going to win their division. Um, I did pick against them week one and week two. Uh, But that secondary, uh, I mean, I think, my beagle could get open against that secondary. Uh, it's it's not good. Um, they haven't had their two, you know, edge rushers available, um, you know, together, um, which I think is hurting them. Um, Cousins, boy, was he terrible uh, last week against the Colts. Um, I think they're missing having another receiver outside of Thielen um, that can get open. So. I really, really worry about this Vikings team and where they're going. Um, and then it the other team. Like for, I was going to say, it kind of feels like for all three of these teams that it's already in 
like a must win, like maybe not mathematically, obviously, but it kind of feels like that. Like you never want to be 0-3. Like all three of these teams, really all four of them are in must win situations this week. Yeah, I think the Texans, I think they could lose and potentially be okay. Um, just because I don't know. I don't think there's a clear-cut favorite in the AFC South. Um, and, like, let's be honest, their three hardest games of the year are probably their first three games. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the schedule makers, I don't know who they pissed off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, dear God, they got absolutely screwed with their schedule. Um, I think the rest of their schedule is going to be a lot more favorable. So I think they could still turn it around. Um, and like, for me, it's just hard. You go against the team that won the Super Bowl last year, you go against the team that had the best record in the regular season last year. Um, and then, you, you know, now you're going up against a Steelers team that might have the best defense in the NFL. Like that's just kind of a tough luck. Maybe that just means you're not a top three, top four team in your conference. Um, but you could still be a good team. So I think the, the Texans, I'm not ready to hit the panic button on yet, but my hand is over the button. So I, I agree with you. The team out of those four that I'm the most concerned about is the Minnesota Vikings. And for the same reasons, really. I mean, I think everybody that looked at the Texan schedule kind of expected them to go 0-2 to start the season and possibly 0-3, depending on how Ben Roethlisberger looked. Um, So I don't really think it's that alarming that they're sitting where they are. I just think it's kind of alarming that they haven't been more competitive. I mean, both of those games were essentially blowouts, except for a couple last-minute touchdowns in the Chiefs game, and then really a last-minute score that they had in the Texans game, or in the Ravens game last week. That game was really a blowout. So um, I'm not that worried about them yet. but between Denver and Minnesota, with Denver, with all their injuries that they've sustained, Drew Locke is out, Portland Sutton is out for the whole season. We already knew that Von Miller was lost before the opening game. Um, they were a team that I wasn't predicting them to be in the playoffs, but I thought that they were going to take strides this year. Um, so that's a team that I have a lot of concern for. And then the Minnesota Vikings would be the most concerned uh, organization, in my opinion, in the, at this point. Um, just how poorly Kirk Cousins has played that they can't even get into their offensive rhythm of feeding Dalvin Cook because he hasn't been able to get their offense into a rhythm. Um, and then one last thing before we wrap up with our locks of the week and due to the week, um, that Dallas Atlanta game, one of the craziest games I've regular season, I'll say that I've seen in a long time. Uh, but I just want to touch on the fact that that, Onside kick was one of the dumbest plays I've ever seen. There were literally six Atlanta Falcons, and you can blame Dan Quinn all you want, but Julio Jones was on the field, and he was right in front of the ball. Hayden Hurst was on the field right in front of the ball, and I know both of those guys have been on hands teams before. I don't know what happened. Like, only the Atlanta Falcons, literally only in the history of the NFL, could have that many yards, score that many points, not have one turnover on offense. They were actually, what, plus four in the turnover differential in the game? Or three? Yeah, something like that. Plus three. Pretty close to whatever that. And uh, they're the only one ever to have had that many yards, that many points, and lose a game, ever. 
440 and one. Uh, just atrocious. What was your takeaway from that, the ending of that game? Um, poor Bella, uh, which, if you don't know, is my Labradoodle, uh, just stressed her out to the nines. I was jumping up and down, going crazy. She was just sitting there painting for the next 15 minutes. Felt bad for her. Um, so, so dad's got to calm it down a little bit. Um, is nuts. Is absolutely nuts. The offense for the Cowboys was so good that, like, I I thought they'd come back and win. And then after the two-point conversion, I wasn't ready to fire McCarthy. But I was like, <laughs> if I scrolled through Twitter enough, I might be able to fire McCarthy. Um, and so, like, it was just pure disgust knowing we're 0-2 with the Seahawks coming up. Um, it, was, it was nuts. That onside kick was – like you said, I've never, I've never oh, seen anything quite like it, uh, and so it's and I, it, I, the I, only I, thing that could have been like that. Like it, the only reason I wouldn't have ever been surprised is if the Cowboys were playing the Lions and this happened because you expect it. It's the Lions. It might be the worst franchise in sports. Shout out to you, Casey Foley. Uh, <laughs> But the Falcons, that might have been the second team that you would have thought that, that it could happen to. So, I heard uh, on Rosillo's podcast from Monday when he was talking about the NFL games that he was like, well, you would never, ever – he was like, imagine a Bill Belichick coach team making that same mistake. It just wouldn't happen. But I kind of disagree with him because at the same point, as I just mentioned, there were six guys on the field. And you would have to imagine that whether – I don't know who the Falcons special teams coordinator it is, is whether they Fired. told him that rule or not specifically, those guys have to know that rule. Julio Jones knows that rule. They just didn't do it. That can't be on the but, coach. But here's – here's I would play devil's advocate. If you watch the video – I don't know exactly how many, but at least three guys specifically run away from the ball, which means if they run away from the ball like that, they might have been coached to do that. If that's true, I hope not. But, yeah, it's like they were all – it's like they were thinking they were on the kickoff team. Or I don't know. Oh, yeah, or that they someone had thrown a fucking grenade at them. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. It was it was bad. Whatever it was, it was a disaster. I, I yeah, I I have nothing else to say about it. We'll move on to our locks and our due to the week, but just absolutely the Falcons for a long time have been my second favorite team. Are you I done? Can't say that. Yeah. <laughs> that 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 was the final straw. Like I I love Matt Ryan. I defend Matt Ryan. I just should. pity Matt Ryan, honestly. Like, what is the what the guy throws for four hundred yards in back to back weeks, and they are zero yeah, two. No. It's not his fault. It's like uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Goodwill Hunting, but if I saw Matt Ryan, I would be uh, <laughs> what's his name in that movie, Robin Williams, and just be like, it's not your fault. Yeah, it's, it's not, not your, your fault. fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. <laughs> it's not your fault. Just, I just repeat it to him. Wouldn't ask for an autograph. 
nothing like that. I would just go up to him and say, it's not your fault about 15 times. I say I'm done, but they play the Bears this week. (laughs) 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 Um, But anyway, I will say real quick, let me just say about the Falcons, significant upgrade to the uniforms this year. Oh, yeah. Uh, I like him. Uh, it's kind of hard. Like in my opinion, it's kind of hard to mess up that color combination. Um, oh, the I know, but the, just the ATL across the chest looks so nice. I I, I like that the helmets look a little bit sleeker too. Um, uh huh. But let's finish up with our locks of the week and then our dude of the week. Um, I'll go first. My lock of the week is that without a doubt, you can take a second mortgage out in your house and put it on this game, trust me, the Lakers will not lose game four, no matter what. The Lakers win game four tomorrow. What's your lock? I like that. Uh, My lock of the week is going to be that the Colts are going to beat the Jets. (laughs) 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 All right. I I just, like – if I had a, a, if someone handed me a million dollars in cash and said, "Go invest this in the stock market," I would be like, "Yeah, okay," and I'd go straight to the casino and bet it on the Colts money line. <laughs> that's how little I think of the the Jets. Tough. Yeah, that's yeah. They're they have uh, moved up. They were opened up at a touchdown favorite. They have since moved up, actually to 10 and a half point favorites. Um, well, let's finish and up. The line, might not, the line might be too small. <laughs> yeah. Let's finish up with our dude of the week. I'll go first. My dude of the week is a thundering herd from we are Marshall. Running back Brendan Knox last week had 28 carries for 138 yards and a touchdown and a pretty big upset win for Marshall over ranked Appalachian State. Who's your dude of the week? I like that. Uh, I'm going to go with someone that I'm not the world's biggest fan of. You're not either. Um, but I decided I would show him a little bit of love. I'm going to give it to Josh Allen of the Buffalo Bills. Mm-hmm. Uh, threw for four touchdowns, 415 yards. was actually very efficient. Um, you know, everybody saw the Twitter run he had where he threw a couple guys off of him. Um, it was a bit of a rainstorm. Um, so I, I'm going to give him props now, um, but be ready, Josh Allen, because the knife is coming at some point. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, that'll wrap us up for this for today. Uh, we'll be back on the next episode to make our game picks and our bets for week three. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you again, everybody, for listening to another episode of Press Coverage. We'll be back on Saturday with our picks for all of the games in Week 3 in the NFL and to give you some betting advice. As always, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts, all under the handle of Press Coverage. Thank you so much for listening, and stay safe, everybody. Stay the same Now my heart feel like December